Back to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4. For a couple of years now, there have been commercials for uh, uh, this, I guess they call it a home heart monitoring device, CardioMobile. I always kind of get a kick out of watching some of those commercials. Uh, the, uh, the salesman is out on the street and he's asking people, how's your heart? And of course, they always say, well, okay, I think. And then the salesman replies, well, how do you know? You know, your heart doesn't have a check engine light like your car. And, uh, and he goes on uh, with, with, it, with his sales pitch for Cardia Mobile. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, of course, speaking about the fist-sized muscle in your chest that's pumping blood. But his question is actually a good biblical question if we have the right understanding of the heart. Biblically, the heart is the, the inner man, the mind, the soul, the real you on the inside. The heart, biblically, is not the center of your emotions. I've preached this to you many times. It's not the center of your emotions as we tend to think in the modern world. The heart in, in the Bible is the center of our thinking. It is the place inside us where we reason and where we meditate and where we choose. So the question, how's your heart, is best answered in Bible terms by our affections, by our attitudes, by our priorities, by our values, by our motivations, by our choices, by our lifestyles. So, so what, what do we love? What do we think about? What, what motivates us? What do we value? What are our priorities? That's, that's how you know the condition of your heart biblically. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 4, guard or protect your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And also Jesus said, lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. See, the heart, biblically speaking, is at the very center of what is going on inside us. It is the control center for our life. It, it is the center of where we think and where we choose and what motivates us. So we're in Mark chapter 4 today, looking at part 2 in our study of this very familiar parable of the soils. As I've mentioned, I think last week, it's usually called the parable of the sower, because of the way the parable begins in Matthew 13, where it says a sower went out to sow. Occasionally, it's called the parable of the seed, but probably the best name for it is the parable of the soil, because the quality of the soil is really the point of the parable. I mentioned to you last Sunday that if you have a heart to serve, if you have a heart to reach people for Christ, if you have a heart to be used by God in the lives of other people, uh, then this parable should give us not only great information, but should give us great comfort and great encouragement and great motivation to keep on keeping on for the Lord Jesus. And if you are seeking the Lord, or if you know someone who is, this parable should be an eye-opener, should be a call to get serious about seeking the Lord. 
So we want to read today all 20 verses uh, here in Mark chapter 4 that deal with this particular parable. First the parable, then Jesus' explanation of it. Mark chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 1. And again, he began to teach, this is of course Jesus, by the sea, down by the Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by the parables, or by parables, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold, meaning times. Thirty times more than you planted, sixty times more than you planted, a hundred times more than you planted. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables." So that seeing they may see and do not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and lest their sins be forgiven them. And we dealt with that entire teaching of what Jesus is explaining last Sunday. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. You may remember from last week if you, that if you were studying this parable in a university or a seminary, they would call it a paradigm parable, meaning that the parable provides a framework for understanding a bunch of other parables. It, it, it's a model or a pattern for understanding other parables. And it really helps us understand our world from an evangelistic perspective, from an outreach perspective. In other words, this parable describes to us how people will respond to the gospel and why they do what they do with the gospel. And nothing could be more important for us than this because we who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior only have one primary ministry responsibility. 
If we were to sum up the Great Commission uh, the way that Mark did at the end of his gospel, we would say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. Since this is our primary calling as followers of Jesus, and this is the final ministry command that the Lord Jesus personally gave to us, then it's very important for us to understand the responses that we will encounter as we speak to people about the Lord. All of the other commands and instructions in the New Testament for us to obey are designed to produce in us a lifestyle, a testimony in the world that makes the message of Jesus believable. I mentioned to you last Sunday the old saying I heard about 50 years ago, what you do speaks so loudly that I can't hear a word that you say. Also, people often say, do you walk the walk or do you just talk the talk? You see, the whole purpose for trying to live a Christ-like life is so that we can bring people to Christ. If we look like the world and we act like the world and we talk like the world and we live like the world and we have all the same attitudes as the world and nobody sees us as any different from the rest of the world, then, then what is the point of Jesus? If he hasn't changed my life, if he hasn't given me a new perspective and peace in my soul and the joy of forgiveness and the confidence of eternity, if the Lord Jesus hasn't done that for me, and if you can't see that happening in my life, then what's the point of anybody else seeking the Lord? I said to you last week, we are called to be different, not bizarre or strange, but there should be a distinctive difference between the followers of Jesus and the rest of the world. Because if Jesus doesn't make a difference in our lives, then why should anybody else seek the Lord? How can our witness for Christ have any credibility? Uh, why should anyone believe us? Now, this parable is designed to help us understand evangelism. Uh, you know that every parable, you may know this, every parable is not repeated in, by all four gospel writers. Uh, actually, there are no parables recorded in the Gospel of John. All of them are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptic Gospels. And the word synoptic simply means to see together. And so although the, the, the number of parables will vary depending on who's doing the counting and how they are defining a parable, if you were to average all the lists together, you'll get around 35 or so parables that are recorded for us. Some people have 39, some people have 32, but anyway, you got about an average of, of, of 35 that are recorded. But there are only seven that are recorded in all three synoptic Gospels. And our parable that we are studying is one of those seven. It appears in Matthew chapter 13. It appears here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. And it also appears in Luke chapter 8. So it is apparently important enough for us to know and understand it that the Holy Spirit directed Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them, to, to include it. Now we know that the Church of Jesus Christ exists in this world to fulfill the Great Commission. To, to go into all the world, preaching the gospel to everyone, making disciples of all nations. That, that, that's what we are called to do. We've been called to this mandate. That's the number one purpose of, of the assemblies of Jesus' followers all over the world. All of the other purposes that we have are all aimed at this number one purpose, as we've been saying. So, so growing in personal holiness, 
and becoming more obedient to the Lord and worshiping the Lord sincerely, becoming spiritually mature, all of those things are to make us into the kind of Christ follower who has an effective witness because our lives and our lifestyles back up our words. But the ultimate end, the number one purpose for which we live in this world, is to proclaim the gospel. That's right at the heart of why we're here and what we do. So we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that's what a New Testament church does. So here we are in this world. Every generation of the Lord's people, for the last 2,000 years, one generation after another until the Lord comes, we have this responsibility to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And frankly, it gets very frustrating doing that. The effort gets disappointing. It gets discouraging. And sometimes we get to the point where we feel like giving up on it all. We're tired of witnessing to people. I'm tired of the rejection. I'm tired of trying to answer their questions. We often find ourselves looking for reasons why our efforts are not more successful. We give out the gospel. It's either outright rejected or else it's received. And then those folks who profess faith in Christ, they either drift away or fall away or change course spiritually. And it seems that there are so few who commit their lives to Jesus and then they stay the course year after year. Well, so, so what's the problem? Why, why does that happen? There are lots of people in our modern evangelical world who say it's, it's our fault. We're, we're out of touch with the culture. We're out of touch with style. We're out of touch with popular thinking. We're not connecting with people. And I, I know that there are cultural changes. There's no, no problem with that. There's always been, there's always been generational changes. I understand that. Uh, there are followers of Jesus in my ancestry that go back well over a hundred years, maybe even further, and hard to trace back more than a few generations. So I know that things change through the generations, and we can modify and we can adapt a few things to, 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 to adjust to those changes. We've made several adjustments here in, in our 38 years of ministry here, times and schedules and various things. But you know, our, our culture is deteriorating morally and spiritually. And if we keep adjusting to our deteriorating culture so we can stay supposedly relevant, then we are drifting right along with the culture and staying just a little bit above it so we can tell ourselves we haven't gone that far and, and, and we, aren't, we aren't doing that badly. So when we look like the world and sound like the world to try to reach the world, then we are saying that the problem with our evangelism is that we need to fix the sower of the seed because it's our fault that so few people come to Christ and stick it out. I know how all that works out. Uh, I know, or I know that how all that would work out on a practical basis. It, it, it's, it's a very controversial issue. How far do you go? How far do you adjust your, your life or your church to make things quote unquote relevant? Uh, you know, I, I, I spent uh, uh, a good portion of my teenage years <clears throat> in a church down south that had several old deacons who were what they called down south exhorters. Uh, basically, they all sat together in the front row. They were like kind of a cheering section for the preacher. We should try that sometime. Huh? <laughs> they would say, Amen, very loudly. And they'd shout, preach it, brother, and, and other things along the way. And if the pastor got on a controversial issue, like I just sort of did a little bit, one of the fellows, I can hear him in my memory, I can even tell you what his name was, 
he, he, he would shout from the front row, He's done quit preaching and gone to meddling. Which, of course, was actually an encouragement to do it some more. But I'll quit meddling and not run this rabbit trail any further other than to say, Jesus' parable does not address problems with the sower of the word. Someone told me last week, I know God uses flawed people. To which I replied, of course he does. That's all he's got to work with. But if people reject the gospel or they fall away from an earlier profession, it's very unlikely that the problem is with the sower of the seed. And our desire to be relevant should not require us to be like the world in order to be relevant. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners not to identify with their lifestyle, not to condone their lifestyle or to copy them, but but to rescue them from their life of sin. So we want to find ways to connect with people. We want to we don't want to get stuck in a rut from the 1900s. We can all stand to be updated from time to time. It's very hard for me to even say stuck in a rut from the 1900s because I'm, I'm I'm in a rut from the 1900s. But you know, 25 percent of the world's population is under the age of 24. One-fourth of the people living on this planet right now are under the age of 24. So yeah, we could probably all stand to get updated once in a while. You know, it's our, like our granddaughter was looking at a movie a while back or wanting to look at a certain movie. And uh, her mother was asking her, so what's this all about? And she said, well, it's probably okay, Mom. It's from the 1900s. <laughs> of course, if you're born in 2008, I guess it seems like it should be okay. It's from the 1900s, okay? But we, all, we can all stand to be updated once in a while. And, and I'm not talking about not updating or not upgrading or not trying to look relevant, not trying to minister to people where they are. But, 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 but let's remember that our number one purpose is spreading the gospel and making disciples. And let's not start thinking that if we fix the appearance of the sower and the style of the sower, that we have solved the issue of people rejecting the message. You can attract awfully big crowds when you do that, but you haven't solved the issue of the human heart. Then a second issue that supposedly professing believers try to adjust is the seed. The message is offensive, they say. Jesus says the sower sows the word. The seed that he's sowing, it's the word of God. And people say, oh, hey, wait a minute, we've got to make some adjustments here. The message is, is, is offensive. It's too confrontational. Nobody wants to hear that they're sinners and they need to repent. Nobody wants to hear that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven. We need to help people to believe in themselves and have a better self-image and feel good about their lives. We need to preach a more acceptable message. But notice what Jesus said about the seed. He said the seed is the word. Therefore, the seed is perfect. If the seed is the word of God, then the seed is perfect. And, and, if, and if we do anything to, to try and alter it, then we've just corrupted it. Jesus said in John 17 that God's word is truth. 
We can't tamper with the truth. We can't adjust the Bible to fit the ideology of the modern mind. We can't just leave out the parts that we don't like and ignore the parts that make us uncomfortable. Uh, God's intention for us is to change us to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Change is challenging, but the seed is perfect. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God, the holy men of God. We can't mess with the message of the gospel. <clears throat> Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God, Romans chapter 10 tells us. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 says, We have been born again, not with corruptible seed, but with incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And in a verse that's not quite as well known, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 is a wonderful teaching. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason we always thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So the seed is the word of God, and the sower is anybody who spreads the word of God. It's the word that has the power. It effectively works in us who believe, Paul said there in that passage, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It effectively works in us who believe. So the Apostle Paul says again, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And that word power in that verse is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. Yeah, there, there is life-changing power in the gospel. The power is in the word. And any sower who sows the word is trusting the power of the seed. So the problem with, with people's response or lack of response to the gospel is not the sower or the seed. It's not for you to say, oh, if I could just explain that better, maybe they would have come to Christ. The problem is not with the sower. Oh, if I just could have answered every question they had, maybe they would come to Christ. The problem is not with the sower. The problem is not with the seed. The seed is the word of God. If you are giving people the word of God, if you are sharing scripture with them, the power is there. The problem is not that you can't read it well enough or that you can't quote it fast enough. The, 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 the problem is in the human heart. See, the, the problem with people's response or lack of response is not the sower or the seed. The issue is the soil. The issue is the human heart. And there are many in the professing evangelical world who are so bent on adapting the style and appearance of the sower and in creating some kind of an acceptable message that we have mutated the gospel into such a corrupted form that it no longer has the power to change hearts and redeem lives because it's no longer the true biblical gospel. So I'm doing all of this, all this background, all this building up, so we can kind of get a feel for the parable, so to speak, and get, and get a grip on what Jesus is teaching. Because as Jesus said, you remember, we just read it a minute ago, if we don't get this parable, then how will we get the other parables? So what we're going to look today, just briefly in our last minutes here, at the first, the first soil type. The other three next time. 
Let's look back at verse, uh, at verse uh, 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Jesus calls it the wayside, meaning the pathway or the roadway that runs along beside the field. There were farmed fields in Israel all alongside many roads, of course, as the farmer sows. You probably don't, we're not, of course, there's no tractors in that day. He plows the field. He's got an ox or a donkey who's pulling a plow, one, one, one single blade, and it's breaking up the soil. And he goes back and forth and he crisscrosses and he makes his rows and, 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 and he breaks up everything in the field. And then while the ground is turned and soft, he gets a, 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 a this bag full of seed. He's, he's got this bag full of seed, puts his hand in the bag, and he's broadcasting. He's kind of throwing the seed out here, throwing it out there. He's throwing it this way. And, and, then, and then they would take a very light rake, and they would just barely smooth it over. And so everything was all done by hand. And, of course, as he's walking near the edges of the field, some of the seed that he's throwing out, it's, it's going to fall on the edges of the roadway. The walking path right next to the field is packed down. It's hardened ground so that nothing can penetrate. It just lays on top of the ground and the birds swoop in and they eat it up. Jesus said in the parable here that the birds represent Satan. Satan comes and he snatches the seed away before anything can penetrate. I said last week that witnessing to some people, it's, it's like throwing a tennis ball against a brick wall. It, it, it just bounces off. And it, it is so easy for Satan to snatch the word out of their hearts because they are hard-hearted. It's a very powerful word picture. This is kind of like, uh, this. we could call this heart the, 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 the unprotected heart. It, it is exposed to every passerby who walks on it. It never gets broken up by the softening plow of conviction and soul-searching and holy reverence for God. It never gets touched by the beauty of grace and forgiveness. It, it is a calloused heart that does not respond to the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit, nor does it respond to the gracious hand of love from the Lord Jesus. It responds to absolutely nothing. The Old Testament would call it hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. We've all seen people like that. We know people like that. I've met people like that. The wedding yesterday that it did yesterday afternoon, I was trying to connect with some people I'd not met before and, and speak a little bit for the Lord. One person I talked to was, was fairly open. The other person was an iceberg, just turned their head, went the other way. And, and uh, you know, that, that happens. That, that, that's a very calloused heart. Rejection of the Lord and His Word has packed down the soil of their heart. They are so comfortable with their rebellion and their rejection that their heart is like a piece of rock. Their hearts are, are, are unprotected. They are, they are overrun by the trampling feet of sinful re rebellion. They may listen to what you witness, or they may listen to what you say. They may even visit church sometime. But ten minutes down the road, the word is gone. It's been snatched away by the devil. And I want to close our thoughts with by reading today Psalm 95. We referred to it last Sunday. 
in its New Testament quote, but I want you to see the original Old Testament quotation, Psalm 95. Very interesting psalm, quite a psalm. Psalm 95, it's very short, it's only 11 verses. Let me read it to you. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with singing. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God. He is the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? What a great God we have. Sing to the Lord, shout joyfully, worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord. And then this great passage that was was quoted there in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation. And I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Kind of a heart-gripping way to end the song. You know, that uh, he starts out with this great thought, let's sing to the Lord. Let's shout to the God of our salvation. Let's give thanksgiving to him. He's a great God. He's the king over all. He made everything. And that great phrase there in verse 6, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And then he jumps right into, so today, therefore today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because he said our ancestors in their, in their generation, they saw the hand of God. They saw the work of God. And, and yet they tested him. They, they tested God. They re- rejected God. They rebelled against God. And God said, you are a people who go astray in your hearts. He said, I'm going to start with a new generation. So when we think back of how this relates to, to Jesus' parable, there are many, many people who have a hard, calloused heart. They will not respond to the gospel. They do not respond to the gospel. There's nothing you can do to make them respond to the gospel because their heart is hard and calloused. The only thing that is going to change that is if, is if the, 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 the plow of God's conviction breaks up that ground of their heart and makes their heart willing to accept the word. That hardened, calloused heart. We've met many, many people like that, and I know you have too. So today, and for the the lesson for us, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Whatever God may be speaking to you about, whatever God may be dealing with you about, whatever issue in your life God may be trying to work with you on, today, when you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart. But rather do what verse 6 says, worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for the teaching of your word. Lord, we recognize that we're all sinners. We're all flawed. We've all made blunders of our lives in various ways. But we know, Lord, that your grace is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Your mercy is new every morning, the book of Lamentations tells us. And Lord, as you speak to us, as you work in our hearts, may we worship and bow down and kneel before you. Help us to never harden our hearts. And Lord, as we talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ and we sense just a calloused, cold heart who has no regard for the things of God, Lord, may we pray for those people. We can't change their hearts. We can't make them believe. We can't make them submit. All we can do is pray for your grace and mercy in their lives. Lord, we know that the heart is the issue. Our heart is the issue. As Solomon said so long ago, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Lord, may our hearts always be open to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.